Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Frazzled. I'm frazzled, James. Very what frazzled. Has, what has caused this, Ben? I, I have been sitting outside, first outside my apartment, attempting to unlock the door. And then outside my apartment, watching a locksmith try to unlock my door. And then outside my apartment, watching a, loss, a locksmith take a drill to my door. And then sitting, finally sitting in my in my office, watching the locksmith then try to fix the door. And we're re- recording this podcast like two hours late. So I, I feel that's a pretty justified reason to feel to feel slightly frazzled. No, I, I think that's fair. Normally, normally technology is well, actually, normally when someone is in a circumstance like this, it is due to them losing their key. But that's not what happened, right? No, I have this stupid electronic door, and yes, uh, the, the the internet of of shite account would would appreciate <laughs> would appreciate the story. Although, actually, it, it wasn't the electronic. I mean, it's hard to say because. It, there was like a sort of misalignment and it, 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 it was kind of misaligned from the beginning and it's gotten worse over time. And then it kind of just got, got a little bent. But part of the problem that he had to take the drill to the doors because I didn't have an actual key because I only had the electronic fob to open it. And, uh, had I had the, had it been a normal door with a key, it, it probably never would have even gotten been a problem in the first place. Yeah. A, a normal door, a normal lock would have been preferable. There and the worst thing is, the worst thing is it's an electronic lock, but there's no like phone integration or anything. So I still have to carry a fob. So, the, the, so there's like actual like zero day to day improvement in my life from having this door beyond the fact that we're now recording podcasts two hours late. There we go. About technology mm-hmm. and society. Mm-hmm. And my society is very annoyed right now. Anyhow, our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. With MailChimp, you can send better mail, whether you need to sell products, share some big news, or tell a story, or send a newsletter. That's Mm -hmm. an excellent use case in my estimation. Mm -hmm. MailChimp's campaign builder makes it easy to create email campaigns that best suits your message. And our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. Indeed. Today is a podcast, I think, in some respects, two years in the making. And that is, uh, back in 2015, I wrote a series of articles that culminated in aggregation theory. And we've certainly talked plenty about aggregation theory. You know, I, I've, <laughs> when, I, when I mentioned it as I did this week, you know, I usually get the usual snark on Twitter, like, oh, I can't believe Ben wrote an article that mentioned aggregation <laughs> theory. You know, because we recorded at that time, I was, I was, it was during the summer. And so we didn't record a podcast around then. So we certainly had plenty of opportunities to talk about aggregation theory since then. So the fact that we didn't have a podcast right afterwards is, is I'm sure our listeners will say that's quite all right. We've, we've heard enough. But what one of the articles I regret kind of that we didn't get a chance to dive into, both because I think it's super fascinating and a lot to learn about. And also, I think, you know, it, it's particularly, you know, relevant to sort of you and your background in some respects was a week or two prior to that where I wrote an article called Netflix and the Conservation of Attractive Profits. Now, Conservation of Attractive Profits is not my thing. It, it, the point of the article was to talk about this theory that was coined by your mentor, Professor Clay, Clay Christensen, called the Law of Conservation of Attractive Profits, which I believe he changed the name to something like Law of Conservation of Modularity. Yeah, he changed the name. And the, the name changes. Um, the name change is actually a useful way of getting into discussing this because it's a topic that's come up a lot that we've spoken about, integration versus modularity. And when there are certain circumstances where it's better to be integrated, namely when something is new and you want to have complete control over the problem, and then uh, a market typically evolves to where it's better to be modular, like a modular system will do better because you figure out how all the pieces fit together, the world gets divided up, and you focus on the microprocessor, microprocessor I'll focus on the hard drive, someone else focuses on the solid 
solid state memory, so on and so forth. And once you're in that world where you understand how the pieces fit together, a modular system works better with everybody focusing on their individual piece. It's a useful way into it because the law of conservation of attractive profits or around modularity, it's it's basically speaking to where the profit accrues in the value chain. So you think about the value chain in terms of all the pieces that go into producing something like a personal computer. And in a, in a world where performance isn't good enough yet, uh, it's typically the integrated provider that will do better. And they are assembling components from various places, oftentimes putting it together themselves in a unique way. And they are the ones where most of the profits will accumulate. But as a market develops and performance starts to improve and we start to modularize the world. We have the microprocessor, we have the memory provider. The value accrues in different parts and it starts to move up and down the chain based on that performance. And in that later world where modular a modular performing system is doing better, then often the profits accrue in a different or an adjacent part of the value chain. And if you think about it in terms of the PC era, for example, a number of those profits ended up accruing to Microsoft and Intel, which were key uh, providers of modular pieces in the personal computer ecosystem. That's a, that's a useful point to kind of focus on, though, because what, what was so what's so sort of illuminating about understanding this idea, and I actually prefer the first name, the law mm. of conservation of attractive profits, because I think it gets at something really important and a way where people really misunderstand, I think, and misapply the theory of modularity. I think sort of the the simplified view of of integration versus modularity is is the sort of you know a new product coming in it's integrated it's not good enough and then it becomes modularized mm. it's all in pieces and then the modular system wins because it's cheaper and better because you're having competition everywhere of the stack and and that's sort of the very and so Windows beat beat Apple mm-hmm. because it came in with a modular system and, and, and et cetera et cetera the problem is that there's a few things are going wrong first it doesn't really address why it was that Intel and Microsoft were so insanely profitable. That this sort of like simplified, simplified view of it, because theoretically, if it's a fully modular system, there should be, there's competition every layer of the stack. There should be, that should be driving down the prices down to zero. Why are we getting two of the most viable companies in the world out of this, out, out, out of this sort of system? And the other problem is that, you know, look what happened. We, we have, we have other examples, the phone being a, a, mm. a very well known one where the theory is like, Oh, just it's going to modularize and Apple's going to be screwed. And it didn't mm. happen. And why didn't it happen? And it didn't happen, I think, not because necessarily – I think it didn't happen because the simplified version of the theory, the sort of like bastardized version that's been passed down through you know everyone who thinks they know disruption inside and out, uh, you know, it's been – it's wrong. It's too simple. It's simplified beyond the point of being of being helpful. And what's so fascinating about this theory that comes from the book, the book where everyone points to about modularization, the, the inverse solution, is that it actually is far more explanatory once you fully understand the full nuances of the theory than the sort of like bastardized version is. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is like a lot of the, so we've litigated this before that particularly on the, the integration modularity and why Microsoft won and Intel won. And there are nuances inside of that. It's a useful illustration. I, your point is well made and I've come around to your point of view on this. And it's always the case with these theories that they don't explain everything. But I certainly like where you're going with this, the, the nuance. Once you understand the nuance of what it is described 
describing that it enables you to be much more predictive. And I interrupted you, so I'm going to let you continue. Well, the thing about the theory that what people don't understand, it, the theory is not about the sort of breakdown of an integrated system into a modular system. What the theory is, is about the shift in integration mm. within a value chain. What happens is wherever there is an – so you have a value chain. Say there's like five pieces that go into creating a product. Just like – I mean that's dramatically simplified in, in any sort of product. But imagine there's five core pieces, right? It, if one company integrates one and two such that it makes that product work, then what happens is three, four, and five will draw modular providers who will focus on making that one piece, will compete or whatever. And the company that that owns that choke point, that integration is a choke point, they will – Dominate. They'll, they'll, they'll dominate. So what happened is a new company will come along and, and uh, will serve a new use case by sort of integrating four and five, for example. And what happens is one and two end up getting split up because what happens – it's like squeezing a balloon where, where the, the source mm. of profits kind of squeeze to another spot and all the other parts, the air kind of you know moves over there and it's no longer a sustainable place to be. Now, that was like just to visualize it. I'm actually going to use an example from, from – the innovator solution from the book. And to me, this is such a great example because one, it's it's scarily accurate. And two, it, it was scarily accurate about events that didn't happen until in the future. Like it's it's a massively powerful example of how theory can, can be mm. can be predictive. So the example that Christensen gave about the law of conservation of attractive profits was processors. If you th- and I'm going to actually I'm going to actually quote a little bit here. If you think about it in a hardware context, because historically the microprocessor had not been good enough, its architecture inside was proprietary and optimized, and that meant that the computer's architecture should be modular and conformable to allow the microprocessor to be optimized. Blah, blah blah blah. What that is saying is the Intel processor, the the x86 processor, is is an integrated sort of processor. Like Intel controls the entire stack from they do the whole like you buy a processor, you buy it as is, and the so all the internal how it's designed, how it's laid out, the various things that it has the the microcoding language all that stuff is all intel does it internally and intel is an integrated provider of microprocessors now again this is why thinking about integration as only being os and hardware is just is it's so simplified mm. it, it, to be useless because actually the reality is the the microprocessor that intel sold was was an integrated microprocessor okay and if you still don't understand what i mean let me continue reading uh, so this is quoting again. But in a little handheld device like the Rim Blackberry, again, this is 2003 where he's writing, it's the device itself that's not good enough. And you therefore cannot have a one-size-fits-all Intel processor inside of a BlackBerry, but instead the processor itself has to be modular and conformable so that it has on it only the functionality that the BlackBerry needs and none of the functionality that it doesn't need. So again, one side or the other needs to be modular and conformable to optimize what's not good enough. Like, like this is, I mean, this is arguably, this is on the level of like disruption in how the, the managers doing the right thing actually makes the business. Cause this is such a critical, this is such a critical component of it. This is un, an unbelievable insight. What Christensen is saying here is it used to be that microprocessors were, were, that was the limiting factor in computers. So how do you make a microprocessor faster? You the various pieces that go into a microprocessor from the compiler to the to, to the actual laying out of the blocks and all the sorts of things and the design and all that in the manufacturing, it all should be integrated together. Why? Because integrated solutions perform better than modular solutions, right? The whole point when modular takes over is when it becomes quote unquote good enough. Not not when it becomes superior, right? So Intel's spent a, a decade and a half 
pushing the processor faster and faster and faster. And the entire PC ecosystem counted on that. The, the way to fix slow programs on your computer was not to d- ask you know, the, the programmers to go and actually optimize the, the heck out of it. It was to go buy a new processor, right? And this shaped the way people built programs for ages and the way Windows, Microsoft approached Windows was the presumption that Intel was going to make the processor faster and faster and faster. And, and everything about the ecosystem aligned around this idea that of Intel pushing the envelope on, on, on processors power by being an integrated player such that they could do that. And so Intel had that squeeze. They, they had that integration. And that's why so many of the profits from the PC industry flow to Intel. And the other integration is obviously Microsoft and the integration there. Microsoft was an integrated player. Their integration was, was the ecosystem. It was the integration of the API and the operating system such that you had to have Microsoft. Like that was this chokehold. An integration point is a chokehold in a value chain. So anyhow, that's what, so all the profits flow to those two players. And what happened? All the other pieces in the ecosystem, of course, were modular because they had to fit into the framework that Intel and Microsoft were define, defining. Oh, and by the way, if you actually really want to get meta about it, Intel and Microsoft were an integration, right? It was basically two companies that were working hand in hand. There was a name for it, Wintel, and that was the integration that mattered. And all the pieces around it, of course, modularized. It's exactly what you would expect to happen. And then you start to think about the cell phone industry and the nature of the problem fundamentally changed. It, it was like driven by power consumption. You wanted to put a, you wanted to create a device that would do a certain amount of the constraints. You couldn't just plug it into the wall. It needed to sit in someone's pocket for eight, 12 hours a day. If you put an Intel processor inside of that, it's not going to work. And therefore the nature of the integration needed to change in order for a product like that to be successful. Exactly. So the integration that mattered going forward was actually be between the operating system and the processor such that you you were only using what needed to be used or you were offloading certain things that used to be done in software like encoding or decoding and you were putting that actually onto the silicon. And to have a third party designing a processor, a general purpose processor that anyone could use, that was by definition going to be a suboptimal approach than having one player do both sides, tuning the processor and the operating system such that they could be sort of the, the same sort of thing. Now, again, there was multiple levels of this. So on one hand, the sort of the initial was, was ARM, where, where ARM you could, is much more sort of a modular architecture to processing in general. So it, just in all parts, the value chain is modular. There's like ARM, which designs sort of the ISA and the specifications. There's the companies that actually create the chips themselves. I mean, ARM, ARM does as well, but designs them like Qualcomm and, and NVIDIA and stuff like that. Then there's the companies that actually manufacture them. And by having a modular sort of architecture in the production of the value chain, you have the infrastructure to create modular chips that are specified and geared for specific use cases. That might be a BlackBerry. It might be eventually an iPhone. It might mm-hmm. be a video game console. But the point, though, is that the level of integration that mattered for that use case was different than the level of integration that mattered for the PC use case. And what happened was Intel was screwed. And it wasn't just that Intel sold Xscale, or why did they even have in their head to sell Xscale? Or, or it was because their entire vision was that we are a design. Like Intel thinks of itself, has always thought of itself as a design company. They design processors and they manufacture them. That's the integration. They design and build and they sell you a finished product. And all the margin, all the markup they get, the reason why an Intel processor costs way more than a, than an ARM processor is because of that integration, that, that, that markup that they can charge. 
Oh, and so that I mean that was another factor was just the pure the pure cost of the matter. And, and Intel was in a position where their cost assumptions and their design assumptions and their very view of themselves as what sort of company are we and what do we sell was fundamentally at odds with this new world where a different integration point mattered. And that's why Intel missed mobile. They missed mobile not just because they, they they weren't smart or not just because they didn't see it coming. They missed mobile because everything about the company yeah. from their culture to their core competency to their cost structure was unsuitable for mobile. Yeah, couldn't have put it better myself. Like you build up all these competencies to do this thing, like to 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 build around an integration that made a heap of sense and was and was super profitable and had been super successful in the PC era, but it was fundamentally different from what was required in the mobile era when the pers- the, the company that makes the operating system wants to be able to integrate with with the silicon in order to save in order to like think about power consumption it went from a world in which the most important element was outright performance to performance per what became a most Im- the most important consideration and, and and at that point you need the 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 company that is delivering the finished product in terms of the operating system and how it integrates with the processor you need to be integrated there in order to be able to do that successfully and you've seen that with Apple now being able to get further and further out ahead with their their series of A level processors built on the ARM architecture deeply integrating into iOS like being the one that does both is critical right but that that's the thing though in order for the processor to integrate with the os the processor itself has to be modular right you see what i mean like if intel wanted to have a fully integrated processor it was by definition like it's it's basically where you break it into pieces like Mm. again you got to think about that one through five example intel used to own one and two but the integration that mattered was like two and four, for example, yeah. right? And so for two and four to happen, one and two had to be broken up. And, and they are, they are incentivized not to be able to see this because they've made all this money from all this investments in foundries and, uh, and, and, and design. Like ARM is basically like it's, it's the, you sell the IP of how the chip would work. And then that's basically it. And yes, they have some other, they have some other elements where they'll do more than that. But by and large, you license the chipset and away you go. Intel was incentivized because of the way in which they made money to not see that coming. And they, 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 they aren't willingly, they weren't willingly going to go towards a world like that because they had all this investment that would suddenly like, how are we going to make our numbers? as if we're not using our foundries and all these other things that we've built. Or on the flip side, the reason why they, they, they didn't use their foundries to become a modular a modular producer, which is what TSMC is, right? TSMC doesn't design mm. chips. They get a design from someone else, and then they, they turn them out. Like, they are a modular provider, and their entire – and the difference is when you're a modular provider, the way you succeed is by being a cost leader. It's by mm-hmm. it's by leveraging scale. It's by being able to charge mm. lower prices and be sustainable. Like, Apple plays off Samsung and TSMC against each other because there's no differentiation. I mean, there is to a degree. I, I, I'm simplifying quite a bit because the degree to which, how, you know, how energy efficient you are and the size of the node and all sort of stuff. It does matter. But but by and large, relative to Intel, TSMC's margins are tiny. Why? Because all they're selling is the production of the chip, whereas Intel was selling a finished product that Mm. included design, that included thinking through all, all the issues, that included the layout, that included the manufacturing. And it was in that integration where margin exists. Because it's in that integration that differentiation exists. And th- there's this there's this idea, I, I, I kind of, if I may quote myself, I like this formulation I made in the Daily Update this week, that 
anything that can be bought is by definition not a differentiation. And anything that has differentiation cannot be sold, is not sold. Because like th- th- that's the whole point. When you are able to put two things together, you're just going to sell it to anyone to come along and buy, right? TSMC is not selling high margin differentiation like, oh, you can only buy these chips here. Anyone can get chips made at TSMC. Mm. Again, that's not saying that's the only way to make a profit. There are other ways to build profitable businesses beyond selling high margin products you know that that's differentiated but it's very hard to transition from one to the other it's totally. impossible it's impossible to transition from one to the other uh, yeah like the, the company's just not built for it it's funny like you you can and you can see this in all kinds of different industries and i know we're going to get into media but just the the nature of this conversation is making me think about pharma and you think about pharmaceutical companies that are integrated all the way up and down the stack they do they they come up with the formulations they do the testing the fda testing and then they manufacture it themselves and while that's under patent that is an incredibly profitable business to be in but then you start to think about how it works when it comes off patent and anyone can take the formulation and you get generics man- generic manufacturers and it's basically like a little replica like with the with the ip of course being like whether you want to be integrated or modular but it's like a replica of of what we're just destri- describing in the chip industry right well and that's why patents do exist because patents mm. are kind of like uh, i think that the natural state of the industry is is uh, there's there's kind of two natural states one is just like it's pure commodity right mm. and then it's like pure competition and profits go to zero or the other one is there is like one area where you can build a chokehold like mm. windows did like intel did like 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 other companies have have, and everything else sort of modulizes around you to have a, an industry where you succeed by being integrated from zero to 100 like mm. pharmaceuticals are you you need that artificial sort mm-hmm. of like guarantee of, of of monopoly which is what a patent is a patent is government granted monopoly so i mean i think that that almost you know uh, to be a fully integrated sort of product i think it's sort of an unnatural an unnatural sort of position to be. Yeah, and I realize I'm opening a can of worms because the pharma industry is a is a yeah. Let's let, let's yeah, stay away from pharma. Dive. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the the reason why this matters for aggregation theory, I think, should be should be pretty straightforward. The point is, it used to be when distribution was sort of a gating factor, the successful companies integrated distribution with like some other aspect of the value chain. But when distribution goes away, the sort of point of integration shifts to owning the customer relationship. It follows, though, and this is sort of the, the, the law here, when the point of integration shifts, parts of the value chain that used to be integrated will modularize, will split up, and will sort of realign themselves according to the new integrator. So this is where newspapers used to integrate sort of like delivery and editorial, editorial and advertising. But when it shifted to owning the customer relationship and and finding stuff, discovery, what happened to those formerly integrated products? They all had to sort of split themselves up and, and, and newspapers have split themselves up, not just into ads versus editorial, but like sports pages and, and, and lifestyle pages and BuzzFeed and, and, and all this different component pieces that used to be a bundle are now totally modularized are totally individual entities kind of floating around, scrapping for every little bit of revenue they can. And Google, meanwhile, is this massive integrated player that's harvesting all of the profits. Yeah, and and Facebook. And I th- that is the core insight that's, that's so 
interesting here is like once you integrate over the top of the customer, you are in an incredibly uh, powerful position. And uh, to go back to what you said about how a company like Intel can't go from being a differentiated provider to being uh, to being a cost competitor, or it's incredibly difficult at least. Think about what's happened to those integrated newspapers once Facebook or Google started taking over the customer relationship. It, it, it is the the new the entities that have emerged specifically in this new world order, like BuzzFeed, that are able to provide those modular pieces profitably. It is super hard to take an old world entity that is integrated and being built purpose built under a different set of assumptions and evolve it to uh, survive in this new world right BuzzFeed is the TSMC of media right like they, they have figured out at least theoretically they haven't gone public yet so we don't mm. have access to financial records but at least theoretically or they're trying to figure out how can you produce content profitably basically using a sort of cost plus approach uh, you know where where they are gonna they win by have figuring out how to do it at scale in a sort of sustainable way, not by the, not by selling stuff. And the sort of the opposite extreme is going all the way to the opposite side, extra like techery, right? Where you're you're focused on super differentiation. Again, I'm not trying to win based on distribution because you have to win on new areas. You have to find new places to sort of integrate or new new tactics to use. Mm. And the, the point though is, is is well taken. Newspapers were Intel. And sort of like BuzzFeed or the media entities that will survive on the internet are are TSMC. Right. And yeah, it's hard to make it's hard to cross the bridge from one to the other. So there's 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 multiple bridges to be crossed here. It's not just the the shift from a sort of high value differentiated strategy to a cost based strategy is is basically impossible. But there's another shift going on here that is the shift from being a sort of monopoly player to being a to actually having to compete for business. And the problem with being a monopoly player is you don't have to really make choices. Like the answer is A or B. The answer is always yes, because it doesn't matter. You're a monopoly. You can just do whatever you want. And there's this letter I, I love to link to. I've linked to, I've quoted like three or four times a day that because it's so good from Warren Buffett about the newspaper industry back in like 1990. Like this is ages ago, but, but it was also just so insightful about what was coming forward. And he's like, some businesses are franchises. Like, in, in the point is that a franchise, it doesn't matter who's in charge, doesn't matter what they do, they're just gonna make money. And a, another way to put it is like franchises are basically monopolies. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like the problem with the newspaper business, and this is pre internet, is like it's shifting from a franchise business to a, I can't remember what we call it, like a managed business or like a, a normal business, or shifting from a franchise to a business. And the problem with a business is it's not that you can't still succeed, it's that it actually requires good management, it actually requires good strategic choices. It actually requires, you know, consistent execution to to win. And the problem is when you've been in a franchise world, you, you're sort of the ability and your muscles have sort of atrophied, and you're not really able to compete. And worse, you're you don't even know the decisions you need to make because you haven't even you haven't been making decisions all along. And so you have the situation where newspapers are thrust on the internet. It's like, oh, let's throw everything online and and let's do this and let's do that. And I've I've written countless articles saying, yeah, the the division between like editorial and business that's that's a luxury that was a mm. choice you didn't need to make when you were a monopoly now you do and everything has to be aligned you have to make these very you know you have to make decisions are you going to be niche are you going to be reach there's no straddling the middle and it's like all these entities they, they can't shift they can't shift for monetary reasons they can't shift for cultural reasons they can't shift for like just they can't even grok that it needs to shift and that's why most have died or are dying 
which is a pretty interesting segue into um, the media industry because this week, I, I mean, we've talk, been talking about an article that was maybe a couple of years old now, and it was written in the context of Netflix. But this week, you deep-dived on Disney and their, the Bob Iger's recent realization of the fact that, the <laughs> surprise, the world is changing and that they're not going to just be able to rely on the cable network that has made them rich and famous. I mean, amongst other things, their ability to create great content. And they're going to have to start to think about, they're going to have to start to make exactly that choice that you just described, where where you're in this uh, franchise world. It's it, like like. Uh, Microsoft was, for example, where they were both horizontal and vertical. They were able to, uh, they were able to sell windows and then they were able to focus on the office suite. They were like one of these unique businesses that were both. And in a certain sense, Disney was, is, has been in exactly the same position. But thanks to the internet, thanks to things like Netflix, that world is starting to go away. Right, because Netflix is one is sort of a killer example of the sort of the application of of this theory, both both of the law of concentration of prof, profits specifically, and more generally, sort of aggregation theory. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if this specifically or generally should go in that order, but <laughs> <laughs> but you had this situation where a technological change, and this, by the way, is is how disruption ties into it as well. You had a technological change, which was the ability to deliver video over the internet, mm. right? So it's it's a new technology that enables something completely new, because you know as we've talked about creating a budget hotel chain is not disruptive you're just right. being cheap right uh, whereas fundamentally changing the the provision of technology like airbnb has done that's a that's a technologically driven change that that has to be at the core of producing sustainably exactly. you know different cost structures it needs what we call like some kind of scalable advantage such that when the performance ends up matching what the current incumbent has then the perform uh, then the price is lower or if the price ends up matching what the current incumbent has then the performance is higher and putting the internet into a media business like this means that yes you have this scalable advantage putting the internet into something like airbnb means versus hotels it has a scalable advantage versus i mean if you think about best western and four seasons if best western tries to move up market and and compete against four seasons it has to basically replicate its cost structure exactly exactly and so the internet was something new because you no longer needed to go over over the wires like you did before right previously to build a competition of cable you had like the satellite business for example right but the satellite business wasn't wasn't really disruptive because they had to actually go out and install satellites and they had to launch you know satellites in the, or satellite dishes they had to launch satellites in the sky and they had to have service people to go out and, and make them all work etc cetera, etc cetera. and it ended up being yes it was an alternative but what's by and large been the competition between satellite and cable i mean cable is usually more widely available satellites maybe in the countryside is more available but it's usually it's been on content like dish or uh, direct tv will will buy nfl rights so you can watch any nfl game and that's a reason to get direct tv right that's not a disrupt you know if your differentiation is is based on that you're not you're not disruptive right you're just a competitor mm -hmm. which is fine i mean not everything has to be disruptive but serving Content over the internet—that's fundamentally different. Why? And this is what's this is what's so fascinating. What it does is it used to be for a cable company, for example, they own the wires and they and they own the customer relationship. So that that was the sort of integration that that, that cable companies had, and then you had mm -hmm. the, the content companies on the other side. And what what Netflix did, Netflix actually let other people do the delivery. 
use the internet connection you already have in your home, the one that you're paying the cable company for. And what they did is they provide the, they own the customer relationship and then they source content. So the new integration here was content and customer. That's where, that's where Netflix integrated. And that was a fundamentally different integration point than what came before. And, and then either side is modularized. So the cable companies delivered the connection to the home or, or, or however you got your internet connection or the phone companies, whatever it might be. And on the other side, the modularization was individual sort of like, uh, like studios, not necessarily the networks, but the studios themselves that were actually producing the content. And Netflix, and then Netflix took out their pocketbook and has gone out and, and paid for them. And they, that's where they pay their money. They pay for peering agreements on one side. So they have like better delivery and better bandwidth and they pay for content the other. And that the point that where they, they own is that relationship between the sort of, sourcing of content and the customer relationship. And what's critical to point is leaving aside where they compete or don't compete is that's a different integration point than the integration points that came before. And it follows that the more successful Netflix is, it must be that those other integrations come under strain. Because that's that's the that's the law. That's the sort of air squeezing back and forth in the balloon. You if you have a balloon, if you squeeze in one spot, that air has to go somewhere. Right. And as, as Netflix has gone, I mean, we've, they, they used to buy the content from other content providers and now they're starting to get into the business of creating the content themselves. And you can see where the squeeze is taking place. You can see the squeeze, the cable companies and those peering agreements, they're attempting to try and prevent themselves from being completely commoditized into us just picking on the basis of which internet provider is fastest and cheapest and they're trying to get some money out of netflix to say okay we will prioritize or we won't deprioritize your traffic so customers don't complain and so they're they're trying to get money there but the interesting part is as netflix has got into the business of creating the content themselves it's starting to squeeze a different player which is uh disney which has been up until this point happy to provide the content to Netflix. And now they're starting to realize that if they keep walking down this path, they might be in trouble. Yeah. And like the, the, the way Netflix got here, I mean, it's, it, we've talked about it multiple times and it was a little, my, my, I'm going to have a frustration of the week is going to be a new theme on Shatekri. Uh, my frustration <laughs> this week is like talking about things like, Oh, isn't Amazon a third for Netflix? What about ESPN? What about this or the, like there's so much going on here that, like I've written about a lot of this and we've talked about a lot of this and you have to rewind that a little bit. I mean, the, oh, the other thing that, you know, Netflix, the other big change was time, like that, that when time no longer became a constraint, right? Because mm. you can stream everything. We, we, we've, we've talked about that. And again, that, that is a technological shift that, mm. that drove this sort of, this sort of change. But the, the, the bigger point, again, this is something we could dive into the weeds for ages. We have before. I'm sure we will again. The bigger point is Netflix's rise by necessity puts strain not not just from a sort of like a high level oh at netflix is competing w- with disney it puts strain on the fundamental sort of structure of the business that drives profits that drives decision making around which uh, these companies are are formulated and so in you're right in the case of disney you know what happened to disney is they used to have basically a, a franchise you 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 know this a few minutes ago where everyone paid for the content on cable 
and they produce content. And 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 that's why I thought it was useful to think about, you know, what we've talked about bundles too. Like again, we're ref- referencing tons of stuff we talked about. And and the question is how do bundles come to be? How, like that's always the question. Like, yeah, they may make economic sense, but how do you get from here to there? Like that's why I'm always skeptical about like text bundles on the internet, right? How do you actually lasso up all the cats, mm. you know, such that it actually is a win-win for everyone involved, right? Because in the meantime, it's kind of a lose for some of the people involved. But how do you get to a win-win? And in the case of cable, it's super interesting where cable was actually a way to get broadcast TV for houses that, for whatever reason, for geographic reasons, usually couldn't get it. So they built a really, really tall antenna, and they'd run a cable from that antenna to all the houses that couldn't get it, and then they could get broadcast TV, right? But it turned out you created – you'll see this again and again in the case of media. You create a new distribution medium, and like that just – that creates all kinds of new things, all kinds of new opportunities, right? And and building these big antennas such that they could take advantage of the old medium, which is broadcast, totally – created this entire new world of content. It's not unlike the internet coming along and the internet being a new medium. And initially you could just get the old medium better, right? Instead of getting the newspaper on your doorstep, you could read the newspaper online, but it, it doesn't end there, right? Completely new things build up around that. And that's what, that's what happened with cable. In the case of cable, you had all these cable operators who were spending tons of money to build these big antennas and run cable to houses and just huge amounts of, of, of expenditure. And they needed to get people to sign up. So they needed good content. They needed stuff that you couldn't get anywhere else to get people to sign up. And you created this ecosystem where you had companies producing content that was attractive. And you had satellite at the same time. So you could have a centralized provider that would spread it all over to all these individual mom and pop cable systems all around the country. I mean, it's all consolidated now, but when cable started, like every city was like its own cable system. And and you had satellite, you had a new technology, a technology unlocking this new sort of thing. You see this pattern again and again. And the key for the content creators was you just create something compelling that people want. And and this was different than for broadcast TV where it has to be the lowest common denominator, right? Because you want to get the most people watching it. And again, nothing's new under the sun. We've talked about this a ton of times. Mm-hmm. Creating for, for the general public, you're going to do lowest common denominator, get the maximum amount of reach, amount of advertising. Mm-hmm. Cable was different. Cable was you wanted people to want it. Because it was a reason to sign up. And so the incentives around all these companies was different. It was produce cool stuff that people want and when people want and then let the cable companies take care of the rest, right? The cable companies will collect the money. They'll deal with angry customers who are angry the prices are going up and actually, but none of them will actually cancel because there's no alternative and it actually really is a good deal. And and you had this beautiful system for 30 years where all Disney had to do was just make sure they had compelling content that cable operators couldn't afford to be without, and that you know ESPN was obviously the monster. They they acquired mm-hmm. it, but that's that's the killer example of content you can't get anywhere else. They had the Disney Channel, they had you know their their whole sort of stable of of cable channels. They eventually acquired ABC, which you know broadcast TV kind of shifted more to a cable sort of mindset over time. But it was a franchise because they they just got money and and they could make great content. And they could have a vertical, I'm going to make differentiated content approach while collecting money as if they were a horizontal player. They, they didn't have to make any choices. 
Right, and and the equivalent of that in the internet era is exactly is exactly what Netflix has evolved into, which is the aim for Netflix is to start to produce differentiated content that brings people online, and you sell it at ten bucks a month, and you want to sign up every person on the planet. And as that's happening, it's starting to cause people to think about, huh, maybe I don't need this cable, this hundred hundred and fifty dollars a month on cable anymore. People are starting to cut the cord. It's finally starting to happen. Now, what's interesting is Disney is one of the few players that has enough of these pieces that are considered essential to the cable bundle that if they decide to go direct to customer and build something similar to what Netflix has, then it would be quite an attractive proposition. But they are going to be forced to a greater or lesser extent to choose between this, that they're no longer in the Microsoftian position of having a monopoly or, an, or a, a franchise, as we've called it, where they get to the luxury of of both this this vertical we're producing differentiated content but we're selling it into this this network of cable providers that give us horizontal like profits where they're making money on both sides they're going to have to choose one or the other and it's interesting to see them struggle with it right Oh, I mean, well, it's sort of inevitable. I mean, the, the, you could compare it to Intel too. I mean, Intel has always sort of had the opportunity to become a, a, a TSMC like fab where other people do the design and they manufacture it and they've, they've had the best manufacturer in the world. And yes, their manufacturing is built up as part of an integrated model, but, but that's always been a, a viable option for Intel. The problem is that if you're competing with TSMC and Samsung, even if you're even if you're good, your margins are so much smaller. I mean, an ARM chip costs like a, a, an order of magnitude less than, than than an Intel chip, just because of the nature of the industry it doesn't allow for Intel like sort 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 of profits. Mm. And in this case, Disney could just you know sell their content to Netflix, sell it to whoever it might be, but they're they're going to be fundamentally sort of it's becoming more of a commodity sort of provider, a position that they're they're not really used to and not not used to having. They're used to having these sort of massive payouts, but when it's ten dollars a month, like how much money is there is there to go around? It's a quite the quandary, right? But I, I mean. Uh, so I guess the question becomes, and I may, actually, I'm going to ask you, what would you do if you were Bob Iger? And it was clear in the in his in the most recent um, announcement around this that he was struggling with it. Like he was struggling with, okay, I think I see the future. I think we're going to have to start to build a relationship, um, a relationship with uh, consumers. And to be fair, they already are starting to do that. In the United Kingdom, for example, they're already trialing something called Disney Life, where you basically uh, pay a certain subscription a month and you get access to the Disney Channel, a whole bunch of the movies, whatever. Now, the United Kingdom, though, is not the United States. Uh, and Disney Life still- is not very successful. <laughs> right, which is, which is also troublesome because you see, you see this, um, this, distribution channel, this horizontal cable distribution channel that's made you so much money and you see it slowly start to erode, but you play this wrong and it will collapse all of a sudden on you. And so they're starting to, they're starting to struggle with it. Do we go direct to consumer? And if we do, do we think about 
creating a bundle where we put everything in. We have access to Marvel. We have access to Star Wars. Do we put all that in? Or, I mean, these are very different brands. Like what when people will subscribe to the Disney Channel, it's probably for their kids. Whereas the nature of the person that wants to see a Star Wars, should they be separate or should we bundle it all up together? Like, And the question becomes, if you're in Iger's shoes, which approach would you take? Well, there's kind of multiple factors that are going on here, right? You just teased a super important one, which is that they're still making a lot of money on cable. And and let's set aside ESPN for a moment and just kind of focus on, on because sports is mm. its, its unique thing that we've already talked about. I'm not sure we get to it today. We, uh, we talked about it a year ago. I've written about ESPN in, in, specifically, but uh, w- when it comes to Disney content, right now they're still making a lot of money by through the sort of cable distributors right so there's always the the question about sort of you know are you a cannibalize your income stream or you make a collapse so that mm. that's one factor that's going on but the second factor that you're kind of driving at is if you are going to go direct to customers and that's something that i've advocated and when you go direct to customers though it's a very different mindset than a sort of broad-based reach everyone model you know if you're broad-based reach everyone you want to win on having low cost and on scale and you're going to make a little bit little bit more everyone make it up in volume as they as they say whereas if you're niche and going you want to own the customer relationship you you want to maximize your revenue for customer right so it, uh, obviously you know Strecker is, is an example way on the extreme i want to maximize get $100 per per subscriber per year as opposed to being like BuzzFeed that's hoping to get like a fraction of a penny for every visitor to its page right just to give an example of like mm. the, the two total opposite two total opposite examples so the thing for Disney is is it would seem most obvious and probably would be easiest for Disney to go towards the the we're going to maximize the amount of money per user because we're going to you know we have differentiating content people want to see our content and we're and we're going to charge for that the problem is that how much do they have enough content for one? Uh, how much can they charge? And are they is their business as a whole ready for the implications of cutting off a huge amount of their base? Right? I mean, mm. the the problem with charging a lot is you're only going to get a few customers. And Disney also has the fact of its theme parks, it has its you know it, mm. it's, it's it's licensing, it all that sort of stuff for Disney being broadly available, being everywhere, having its characters everywhere, being able to access it all the time, being on every, you know, everyone's house has it on their TV because if they have cable, that's a huge benefit to the whole of of the business for one. And for two, Disney is really unique in that Disney actually means something. For most companies, they might have brands, like they might have like Harry Potter or something, but what's the connection between Harry Potter and like Universal? Like it's much more of a sort of, yeah, people in the media business know that. People who mm. on Wall Street know that. Does the average customer know that? No, not really. What's unique about Disney, and I think the theme parks are a huge part of this here, mm. is mm-hmm. Disney is just as strong a brand as like Mickey Mouse, right? And Disney is just as strong a brand as as as, as Cinderella, or if you want to have more modern examples like Moana or, or Toy Story. Those are just so integrated with Disney that it's actually really interesting and, and it opens up the possibility. It's a compliment to Disney that they have this choice. What if Disney did want to try to reach everyone and charge a lower amount? Well, that though kind of gets to the hang up. At the end of the day, Netflix is not about Netflix is building a new bundle. Like, let's be very clear. Netflix's ambition is to is to replace cable again. I think, except for sports, and because sports is very unique characteristics, other sorts of TV. So, I think there will always be going forward a separation between sports and everything else. Netflix is trying to do everything else. Like in Netflix's ideal world, you don't need to 
have any other services because Netflix provides everything that you might want to watch. And, and so th- to think about Netflix as being like there's ABC and there's CBS and there's Netflix. No, Netflix is is, is want, wants all of it. They, they, they want to be all of it. And so if, ne- if Disney wants to compete with that, the appropriate thing to do is to get all of it. That means mm. not just selling Disney content, but also make a deal with Universal, make a deal with CBS, make a deal with Viacom, make a deal with these other companies to carry the full, basically rebuild the bundle themselves such that they can compete with Netflix, not just on a differentiated content basis, which gets people in the door, but on a breadth basis, which keeps the largest number of people inside and gets you the sort of bundle economics that that, that make you a real competitive force. If if I was Bob Iger, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't feel like that is entirely in in keeping with the ethos of Disney. I mean, the the interesting part is that they are they are kind of partway there already. Like if you look at the assets that they own in ABC, in Disney, in ESPN, Star Wars, Marvel, like that is the beginning of a phenomenal bundle, and uh, that that could conceivably be put together to replace cable. And yes, you would need to add other elements um, to complete that. But it's the starting point of of a of a phenomenal bundle that that could be very competitive with Netflix. At the same time, you think about the theme parks and all those other elements. Like you can see both the vertical and the horizontal pulling in in uh, very different ways. And I guess the challenge is almost that they have the option to go either way. Uh, it, in many instances, a lot of these organizations, when they face this crossroads, the right thing to do is apparent. Like you need to switch from you're doing this and it needs to be something else. But in this instance, because of the way it's evolved, they could choose either path and either path uh, brings I mean, they're both fraught with risk and they're both fraught with downside and they both could end up collapsing. The One could end up collapsing the bundle much faster than the other that already exists and so on and so forth. And that's the struggle with it. Like, I would not want to be the person having to make this decision because both are possibilities and it's it's hard to see clearly whether one is better than the other. Right. That's exactly it. Like, with my, I compared it to Microsoft, like being a former monopoly and having to choose between vertical and horizontal. Mm. The luxury is that it was obvious what Microsoft should do, right? right? They are, they needed to be a horizontal company to go into services. It was the right place for them to go. They were never going to be competitive as far as a, a vertical player. What you're exactly right, though. What makes Disney so fascinating is Disney really at heart is a vertical company. They, they, they want to service you up and down the chain. They want to produce highly differentiated content. This sort of mindset and approach to business that results in differentiated content is very different than what is optimal for reaching everyone and having a sort of mm-hmm. iterative good enough mindset. We talk about this in the context of Apple. Like, Why does Apple struggle in services? Because they're so good at being a vertical, integrated, differentiated company. It just, it's, it's hard for them to do the right thing when it comes to being a horizontal, broad-based company. We have to have way higher tolerance for error. You have to have way more flexibility. You have to, you know, because you're you're dealing at at, at horizontal scale is very different than vertical scale. And, and so this is the thing with with Disney. I'm actually not sure if I agree with my conclusion. They are they are a vertical company at heart. And mm. it, you can you can look at that vertical integration for any number of levels from from big picture from the theme parks to the to the merchandise to the movies like that's a that's an integration to just the actual production of content and how they approach it and think about it. But at the same time, there, there, there's also tension there. If they limit the production of content to you have to pay a lot of money for it, 
that may they may be the best way to replace that revenue, but then they're kind of hurting the rest of the business. Or if they go the other direction, we're going to be everywhere and everyone can access it. To actually be competitive, they need to loosen the strings, loosen their control considerably, right? And my concern is they're not going to choose. They're going to take this sort of middle uh, ground where uh-huh. they – Put Disney stuff out there, and it's it's it, and it's not that expensive. So they reach out to people, but it's not that compelling because there's just not enough mm. stuff. And th- and it's kind of going to be, it's not going to make nearly enough money. It's not, it, it, and they're going to be stuck in this sort of malaise where they're not optimizing the assets that they mm. have because they never made a choice. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting challenge. Like I, I you, you, I think you nailed it exactly there where when companies face these dilemmas with really difficult problems, they end up not making a decision at all. And even in the, even in this conversation and the nature of the struggle that we're having, I could, I could see how they could fall into exactly that trap. And it's like, it's almost like they, it almost would be better if they're going to just kind of half-ass this, this streaming thing. It maybe it'd be better if they did nothing at all and they just became a Netflix supplier. I mean, mm. they, they have great content. They can, they can make good money by selling to Netflix and selling to Amazon. Like there's, there is a definite future in content. And they're like, oh, the feeling is, oh, but then in the future, our profits and margin would be much less than they would be. Yes, they are. That's what happens when you become a commodity. But at the same time, they're going to be much smaller than they would be if you don't fully commit to a, to a, a real streaming strategy. Yeah, I I almost wonder if part of getting this right is ha- how you structure the problem, like whether you think about, I mean, we've talked about Disney and just by virtue of the name, you start to think about the characters and the theme parks and those elements. But there is also ESPN and there is also ABC and how you split the content creation uh, like how you split those apart and how you think about the entity. Is it better to pull them apart and think about what's best for each of these individually? Or do you think about it from the whole? Like how you end up structuring the problem, I think is going to be a core part of this. And uh, you're right. It's like challenging. I, there's not an immediate answer that comes to mind because both paths, I could, I could see you going down the, like, let's create a complete bundle. We'll throw it. We'll throw sports in there. We'll throw Disney in there. We've got Marvel and Star Wars and ABC. And like, that's a good, like, that's pretty competitive. Like, if, depending on how much you charge with what you might pay for Netflix at the same time, like, would you want to create those apps individually? Because the nature of the consumer is so different and you have the the difference being that the Disney brand is then attached to the theme parks and how you want to treat the content created that's tied to the theme parks differently to how you treat the sports content and so on. Like it's a really challenging problem the way that they've integrated for this existing ecosystem and trying to pull it apart to to suit the future. It's like untangling all of that in the right way to make the right decisions is a hairy problem. Well, it's more than that because if they are selling a, a, an integrated product like Netflix. Is where they integrate the customer relationship and the content. By necessity, you need to modularize somewhere else in the chain just to get scale. And so with Netflix, the modularization is the production of content. Like, yes, Netflix is buying full shows, but like Netflix employees aren't filming these shows, right? Mm, like they mm. made a deal with like Shonda Rhimes, right? Like they're Shonda Rhimes is not a Netflix employee. She has a deal with Netflix to produce content like a whole bunch of people are going to have a deal with Netflix or have deals with Netflix to produce content. Like the content production is is modularized and not owned by Netflix. Mm. The mm-hmm. issue here is that Disney does own the production of content. 
and they're trying to go up the value chain to compete with Netflix. But if you just try to own everything, you're going to become you, you, you become inflexible and you can't scale. Mm. And that's the issue. That's what I'm trying to drive at. If they actually want to compete with Netflix, that means loosening the chains on production. Maybe they still produce their own shows like because their content's super valuable, but it also means bringing in other producers, like completely changing how you spend money on acquiring content. And that's just mm. so fundamentally out of Disney's mindset because they're like, no, to, in Disney's mindset, everything goes back to owning the production of content. And that's my point. To actually compete if, the, if, if to actually compete with Netflix on a streaming basis means letting go of like sort of the the core way that Disney thinks about itself as a company. It's like yeah, Intel having I, to let go of being a design company and just embrace being a manufacturer. They're, they're incapable. But uh, yeah, that's exactly right. This is reaching back to previous conversations. This is reaching back to culture eats strategy for lunch and then purpose eats culture for lunch. Like, and we're like the very nature of what you're describing is antithetical to the organization and it would make it very hard for them to accomplish that. Frankly, I, I didn't write about this, but I'm sort of thinking about it now. If you think about this idea that when value change, when the point of integration changes and, and, and parts of the value chain that were previously integrated modularize and mm. parts that were modularized become integrated, it follows from that that probably the optimal strategy for Disney is some sort of breakup, to be honest. And you, you I, mm. I just got this when you were saying it before. Like there's the, the parts of Disney that are optimized yeah. for being vertical like should be one part and the parts that are optimized for being horizontal should probably be yes. another part. It, because it, again, the luxury of monopoly, the luxury of being a franchise is that you can have these sorts of things that are at odds within the same organization. And it doesn't matter. You don't have mm. to choose, but when you have to choose, Either you choose one area and you hurt parts of your company because it's suboptimal, or you choose the other and you hurt the different part of the company, or you just right. split it up, right? And, and you actually break up a this massive integrated mass, which made Disney so successful. But if the point of integration that matters in the value chain shifts, then yes. is that company sustainable any longer? Right. And I mean, and when the, if we switch it back to the comparison, and again, it's easier in this circumstance because the right strategy was clear. That's kind of what Nadella's managed to do with Microsoft, where he deprioritized one of the areas of the business. But in the, in the instance where these things could all be successful, I actually think this notion of structuring it correctly and maybe breaking them apart in order for both parts to, uh, most, to be able to make the right decisions given their relative strengths, I think it actually is probably it's somewhere towards the right solution. Yeah, anyhow, I I, I I've written a lot about Disney the last couple of weeks. I'm going to write another one because I think that that that's sort of, yeah, you're right. That's sort of the natural implication, and and no company exists on its own, right? You can't. Yes, to some extent, you you exist in the context of the the world that you live in the technology things that go to your competition the value chain that drives sort of your business and when those things change they're like you have to change and sometimes you can't change and you have to take sort of more different measures or you or you die and this is mm. like this is why companies die this is it's they don't die and this is the sort of brilliant insight of disruption is companies don't die because they're dumb they die because the fundamental structure of mm. the industry in which they compete changes and the the very act of making a company building a company is hard to be able to actually mm. make surplus money in like a in like a series of transactions such that you can reap a profit it's incredibly difficult mm. and requires total optimization your company has to be perfectly optimized to yeah. the problem at hand and it follows if the problem changes you're in trouble because 
you were optimized for a different problem. And that's okay. And that's, You're not a bad manager. It is. No, 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 totally. I mean, that that insight of like, they don't fail because the managers do everything wrong, they do everything right was kind of the moment where my mind was blown by Professor Christensen. But that notion of the problem changing, and that's what's so interesting about the internet, is that it's, it's, it's changed the, the problem for is, almost everyone. Yeah, and it's changing it at an increasingly fast rate. And so more and more of these problems are coming up. And it's part of the fun of getting to look at all these business analysis problems is because like previously, it would have taken, it would have taken generations to see this amount of change and it's being compressed and compressed. And these difficult problems, unlike any of that have been seen previously are coming up more and more often. Anyhow, that was uh, that was a very, I think, uh, dense dense podcast that that touched on a lot of stuff. I'm going to include a lot of of links in the show notes. A lot mm. of the stuff I've written about, and we compressed like tons of like. I know there's all kinds of questions we didn't answer about Amazon versus Netflix, for example, about ESPN, about sports in general, about advertising. You know, like you saw you saw that uh, WPPs projecting like dramatically decreased advertising um who who, who would have seen that coming uh <laughs> there's all these sorts of angles to this that uh i hope you'll give us grace for not covering but i think it was it was probably dense enough yes i i would tend to agree our thanks to mailchimp as always for sponsoring exponent and uh will i see you next week you will not. I am making my annual pilgrimage out into the desert for Burning Man, so it'll be the week afterwards. Oh, such a cliche. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I will talk to you in a couple weeks then. Sounds good, mate. Speak to you then. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.